Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, JP Barrick, and this is Digital Gold. Known to many as the Bitcoin kid, I started buying cryptocurrency out of my parents' basement back in 2013. The goal of the show is to simplify the crypto world and explore how it changes the way the world thinks about money through conversations with thought leaders in this space. JP Barrick is the founder and CEO of Orem Capital Ventures. All opinions expressed by JP and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Orem Capital Ventures. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Welcome to the Digital Gold Podcast. Today, I'm here with Karthik, who is a power and environmental product market professional with 10 years of experience in risk management, fundamental analysis, and trading of electricity and renewable energy. He's also been a Bitcoin investor since 2013 and has served as an advisor to Orem since early 2020, providing insights and information based on his deep understanding of the energy market. Karthik, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to, to talk more about the energy business, Karthik, with you on the podcast. Thanks again for coming on. The first thing I want to talk about is the Texas snowstorm. Can you talk to me about what that did to the markets and how you think it's going to affect them over the next couple of months or years to come? Yeah, absolutely. I should first start off with a little story about the snowstorms here in Texas before talking about the actual implications on the market. So I actually, with the current company that I'm working with, I help manage our uh, risk associated uh, with our power contracts in the Texas market in ERCOT. And so during the storms, I had no no internet, no power. So I was kind of just bundled under, underneath my blankets, you, tethering the internet on my laptop to my phone and keeping in contact with my, with my coworkers because we were affected quite a bit on the business side due to those uh, freeze-offs and, and resulting blackouts and super high power prices that resulted, you know, $9,000 per megawatt hour. So it was one of those unforgettable situations where you're freezing your butt off, but you still, this is probably the most important time in my career that I need to pay attention to work. So was, that little juxtaposition was truly unique and something that I will never forget. Yeah, the, the kind of the fallout from that event has been pretty substantial. One thing is that politically, you're seeing a lot of blowback against renewables, specifically wind generation in Texas, because of the freezes associated with the turbines at the wind farms in Texas. They weren't they basically you, there was hardly any wind power that was generated during uh, during that time. You know, you had natural gas freeze offs, but there's it's become a very political situation to the point where you have some bills in the Texas state legislature that are putting the onus, I don't want to get too deep into kind of what's happening, but they're putting additional responsibilities on renewable generators and essentially adding to the costs of uh, operating wind generation in Texas. And obviously you're going to get response on the other side from the environmental side saying this isn't appropriate. There needs to be another, uh, there needs to be something else that's done. So the, the political fallout from what happened has been massive. And you kind of combine that with Biden getting elected and, and taking over office in late January. And then boom, this thing in Texas happening. Biden has big energy ambitions, and I should say clean energy ambitions. And so 
the combination of all this stuff has just, it's made for an exciting time in our lives to see what's going to be the, the true long-term fallout of all this stuff happening. And so we're in for some pretty intense political fights associated with both what's happening at the federal level and with what happened in ERCOT back in February, for sure. Now, people who aren't as familiar, can you give like a two minute overview on what played out and in what order regarding generation going offline during the cold shortage or during the ice storm? It's pretty straightforward. You, you had wind turbines that kind of just that froze and that couldn't spin, even though it was windy. You had wind turbines freezing off and you also had at the same time just gas power plants that were not able to operate either due to pipeline issues or due to issues at the, at the power plant itself. So if you're taking out, you know, a good portion of the wind generation and you're also taking out fossil fuel gas generation at the same time, I mean, you can easily understand why there was very little, you know, there was not enough generation available to fulfill the demand requirements, the power demand requirements around the state of Texas. So you had blackouts. Blackouts are merely a way to just, it's the last resort, but that's a way to manage the demand kind of overblow that that you saw during this event. And and as a result, you saw power prices head up to $9,000 per megawatt hour, which is the kind of the cap that, that, that Texas has. Power plants don't just sell power into the market. They also sell what are called ancillary services. So these are services that maintain grid stability for the most part. So you can sell energy into the grid, but you can also provide ancillary services that maintain grid reliability. And, and one of those ancillary services went up to as high as $20,000 per megawatt hour. You had all kinds of issues and that started from those high prices. And just to kind of dig one step deeper, because I think this is important with a lot of wind generators, wind generators will hedge their forward power sales into the grid. So they will do forward sales at fixed prices for their generated power. And the assumption is that these hedges are on, but you're going to, you know, you're short on the, on the hedge side, but you're going to make it up by generating electricity during those times. But what ended up happening, it was that you still, you have your hedges, but you don't have the, the wind generation on the other side to make up for it. So you're just, you just kind of have a naked position of being short. And so if you, you can imagine if you're selling power, at $40 in a hedge and it goes up to $9,000, that's a lot of money that's lost on your hedges. So you have credit issues with counterparties, wind farms not being able to pay their counterparties. And the widespread effect of this is, I don't think is necessarily understood by everyone just yet, but but yeah, it was it was a disaster for a lot of parties. And now on the other, other end of that, you know, if you're serving load in the state of Texas and you have one of your customers that is blacked out. When you're serving load, you're buying hedges. And so if you're long the hedges and, and your customers are kind of blacked out, well, you get, you benefit from that because, you know, you bought those hedges at call it, you know, 30, 40, $50 and they're settling at $9,000. So depending on what your load profile is, you could have very much benefited from what happened also. And for those people that are hedging and and didn't actually generate wind, what happened to them? Because I know there's people that made hundreds of millions of dollars, had the best three or four days of their lives, of the wind generation live, and then there's people that you know went bankrupt. Can you explain, that is, is that the main difference is because they had to hedge on or hedge off there? 
That's exactly right. It depends on your hedge profile. So there, there could have been power plants that weren't hedged at all. So, you know, usually your peaker type power plants that kind of just operate when prices go high and they're kind of able to turn on and off. Uh, I don't want to say easily, but easier than other bigger than other power plants. It depends 100% on the risk management associated with the project and how you structured those hedges. And so it's not necessarily easy to know how every single power plant did that, but there were definitely different profiles of, of hedging that went on. Now to talk to your question about wind, and this has been publicized, a lot of these wind projects have tax equity sponsors that are usually big financial institutions, banks, and certain others too. And what's been happening is that these wind farms have been filing force majeure claims on what happened, essentially saying that the weather event was quote unquote an act of God and these guys have hedges, right? So we shouldn't be liable to fulfill these hedges because of, of a force majeure event. And those are kind of going back and forth. Now you have lawyers that are involved. And so this is, this it's getting ugly, I think is the main conclusion. We haven't seen the full fallout from this just yet. So I think it's, it's very important to kind of pay attention to what's happening and uh, more importantly, see what changes come about in the coming months and years as a result of this. We mentioned still not done yet. And I you know one of those big things that there's a lot of credit swaps out there by Shell and potentially BP. Are you familiar with, with how those are handled or kind of what's the next steps for there? Shell and BP have separate businesses that provide as kind of a, a backstop for certain uh, smaller retail electricity providers. And so those retail electricity providers, you know, essentially went under. So they, by default, at the end of the day, are operated by Shell and BP. BP just a few days ago, actually, magically announced that they're going to start a retail energy business. And so I think part of the reason they're doing that is because they have all these retail contracts that they took over as a result of what happened in Texas. And they could decide to sell those off to other retail entities, or they could just start their own retail energy business and manage those contracts associated with you know the contracts that they inherited. So yeah, I think the retail electricity business was hit very hard, especially the residential, because residential with your commercial and industrial retail electricity, a lot of those entities were blacked out during the storm. But your residential, you know, you have people living at home who are trying to turn on their heaters, trying to keep themselves warm. Those were the ones that got hit very badly. And I think the most publicized example of that is Gritty. Gritty essentially provided contracts to residential customers that in which you were priced at a variable rate according to the wholesale price of electricity. You know, they, they were, they're, they're gone now, but other residential electricity providers that provide fixed price contracts to their customers and maybe didn't hedge as well as they should have, they got hit very hard for sure. And how do you see Bitcoin miners coming in and, and helping? helping improve the overall ecosystem of in the especially the Texas markets as we know there's you know thousands of megawatts looking to come online in generation, but then also in, in consumption now with, with Bitcoin miners and the ancillary services available. Yeah. Now we're getting to the now we're getting to some creative solutions that I've been thinking about. First we should take a small step back and, and look at how the Texas market operates and how other markets in the US operate. So if you go to the grid operators in the Northeast and the Midwest, so that's you know New York, PJM, Needpool, which is the kind of the New England area and then MISO, which is essentially your Midwest. All of these grid operators have what are called capacity markets. And so what a capacity market is, is it is an incentive built into the grid operator that incentivizes power plants 
to just be available during times of need, during times of emergency. So you'll have power plants that participate in these capacity markets. They could not be generating any electricity throughout the year, but they're getting capacity payments because they're quote unquote available when need be. And so this capacity market has provided an additional level of grid reliability in these markets at the Northeast and in the Midwest. The way that ERCOT operates is that there is no capacity market. It is what's called an energy-only market. So the way ERCOT thinks about things is that, you know, we have, ERCOT has a price cap of $9,000. So the potential benefits of participating in the energy market outweigh the additional cost to customers that is required to have a capacity market. Because if you have a capacity market, you essentially have another line item on customers' bills that says, you know, you're paying for energy, but you're also paying for capacity. And so at the end of the day, it makes retail electricity more expensive for customers for having a capacity market. So the way ERCOT thought about it was, let's have an energy-only market. Let's try to make power essentially as affordable as possible uh, to the customers within ERCOT. Now, what we found out was that the price you pay for providing that that low price of electricity 99% of the time is that 1% of the time or 2% of the time you have the potential for disaster. I don't want to say it's been a political kind of difference, but it's it's been a philosophical difference between ERCOT and the other grid operators for a long time now. And this is where I think Bitcoin mining can come in. I actually think that Bitcoin mining in ERCOT and in, in other, you know, what's happening in, in, in the markets that I mentioned before in the Northeast and the Midwest is that those capacity markets are, are pretty low. There's the capacity payments that power plants receive are, are not enough to keep them afloat for the long term. So this can also be utilized in those markets too. But to me, Bitcoin mining presents an opportunity to utilize itself as a kind of a proxy capacity market. So the idea is, is that you have power plants 95% of the time mining Bitcoin and during times when they are needed during situations like this, or even when power prices are high enough to justify, you can have those power plants sell their power into the grid. And it's as simple as that. In this way, you don't need to implement programs like capacity. To implement any changes in a, in a grid operator takes a long time. And for me, Bitcoin mining presents kind of an immediate solution to, not subsidize, but to incentivize power plants to operate by mining Bitcoin. But also, if power prices do get to a point where it's economic for them to sell power into the grid as opposed to mining Bitcoin, they have the optionality to do that. And that optionality is only is that's available in Texas, but do you think that is going to continue to be a large revenue stream or for Bitcoin miners? Or do you think that's going to fade out as more miners join? I, I think that's a loaded question. It depends on the cost of mining. I think that, you know, with where Bitcoin is right now and the the profitability profile associated with power prices in Texas, the, the numbers work out for sure. Now, if power prices start to go up, because essentially you have you, you, Bitcoin mining gets to the point where a lot of power plants are seeing Bitcoin mining as more profitable than, than selling power onto the grid. I think you have market mechanisms to fix that. If power prices get high, then that incentivizes more renewable generation to get built, for example. So I think the important aspect of this is that you keep, you're not waiting for a central entity like ERCOT to come up with a solution. The solution is already pretty much there. And the solution provides forces that will change power price dynamics, but you can respond to that. You can build more generation. You can build more renewable generation, more importantly. And so uh, I think I think it's a much lower hurdle to present Bitcoin mining as a solution than than 
waiting for the state of Texas slash ERCOT to, to, to present a solution is kind of the way I look at it. That is a good way to look at it. The free market, as you're saying, the structure is already built and now Bitcoin miners are going to come in, adopt that structure and, and use it. And even if it's scaling up, you know, gigawatts, it'll go e each way. What are your, your thoughts on, on some of the, you know, any of, will there be new tariffs introduced because of the snowstorm into the markets? Uh, you mentioned on renewables, will that increase the price of, of power or tariffs yeah. even for ancillary services? How might those change due to the, the snowstorm? And we mentioned, I'm talking previously about the potential to build, a, I believe, a supply market or some sort of market that Texas doesn't have that other uh, markets have. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right now, what's in Texas, the state legislature, are bills to essentially charge renewable facilities with, right now, ancillary services are charged to load, meaning to customers, retail customers. And the bill essentially moves those charges from customers to renewable generation, which it's an additional cost for renewable generation. And so if you have an additional cost, they're going to be offering in their power into the grid at higher prices to pay for that cost. So ultimately, it's going to cause prices to go up for sure if, if that's passed. I don't see uh, a capacity market being implemented in Texas only because, but again, this is, this is political. You know, what do I know? I think that that veers a little too far away from how the market has operated historically. I hate to say this because this it was a tragic event. I mean, there were a lot of lives affected, but before the event, Texas had the lowest power rates of any state by far. And that's a big, it's a big advantage for the state of Texas to have that. So you really have to balance the additional costs associated with a capacity market with trying to maintain low prices within ERCOT. And I think to me personally, I think Bitcoin mining satisfies both. You don't, if you have Bitcoin mining, the Bitcoin mining itself is the incentive that power plants need to kind of not sell power into the grid. And to me, it's a perfect solution to this little problem. Now, I think we both would agree that it's a perfect solution, Karthik, but how has your discussions been with power producers and energy companies before Bitcoin's price rise, maybe after the price rise in 2021? Has that changed? Bitcoin mining is a very new concept to most people in the world. And I think generators are slowly kind of coming around to the fact that this is a viable opportunity to monetize on power generation. A lot of power plants have these long-term hedges and those hedges are retiring. So they're going to be selling into a merchant market. And so if you're selling into a merchant market in which prices are low, even after the snowstorm in ERCOT, ERCOT prices are still, if you look at the forwards and kind of what's happening, they're still relatively low. So I think at the end of the day, for your investors and for management, you want to maximize profitability in the operations of these power plants. And Bitcoin mining is the way to do that. There are some hurdles associated with that. You know, there's credit issues with miners and things like that. But I think that slowly but surely, the generators are, are starting to see the light in selling their power to miners for sure. And let's talk about those credit issues. So traditional contract, when you build a power plant, you have a PPA, it's for 10 to 15 years, you're able to go get a financer on the deal. Bitcoin miners can't provide that a level of guarantee, let alone five years, let alone even a month. Right now in the industry, what we do is, you know, one or two month deposits, and, and then the, you're paying for the power before you use it. So the thought process is the credit risk is going to be limited, but you're not able to finance out a new project. Can you talk a little bit more about how that might be changing? To tell you the truth, I think you would know a lot more about this than I would. Once we have a history of Bitcoin mining performance to which you can evaluate the credit risk, you can evaluate the revenue risk. 
I think that's when the comfort will increase. But until then, I do think that at the end of the day, unless you have kind of some good infrastructure to, to give generators that confidence that the credit risk is worth it, I think it gets easier as we move forward in time is all I guess I'm saying. Because for me, a lot of the Bitcoin mines that I'm seeing built that are pulling electricity from existing generators are pulling from generators that are smaller that are generating electricity from more expensive fuel feedstock. So something has to give is, I guess, all I'm saying. And at the end of the day, with where Bitcoin prices are trading right now, I don't think there's an issue with Bitcoin miners paying a little bit more than what other off-takers are willing to pay. And so I think th that's where the slack kind of gives. I think that's where Bitcoin miners can come in and really make, make a mark. No, I definitely agree with you on that. I think that as the industry matures, you know, hopefully the off-take agreements, the being able to hedge your Bitcoin out six or 12 months, being able to hedge stuff like that, it, it will mature. But I mean, we're still you know, not seeing that in the industry at all in, in any way. So it's very disappointing that these power companies are like, oh, you know, how do we get 10 years of offtake, which sadly, you're just not going to be able to get in the current structure of Bitcoin. But that is, it's a feature and a bug. Orem provides a bridge to the digital currency mining world for individual investors, financial institutions, and energy companies. By combining over seven years of mining experience, 24-7 management, and directly aligned incentives, Orem's managed mining program is the simplest way to enter the digital currency mining market. To learn more, please visit forumcapitalventures.com. One thing I will say is that I think you're going to start to see entities that are interested in becoming middlemen between the generators and the Bitcoin miners, because the math is very persuasive for the viability of Bitcoin miners. So I think what's going to start to happen is you're going to start to see, I don't want to call them traders, but entities that are willing to take on the risk of the Bitcoin miners, but are all, that also have can back to back with these generators and that are maybe a bit more quote unquote credit worthy. So I think that's where the opportunities will start to happen. I don't think it's, at least in the beginning, it's going to be directly between generators and the miners themselves. I think there's just going to have to be some middlemen that come in and and see the opportunity in providing that service, essentially a, a credit sleeve between the miners and the generators. hundred percent. I think there's that's a huge market opportunity that most people aren't looking at because they don't see it as a market opportunity or even understand the risk associated with it. I mean, do you see Bitcoin mining companies moving into the electric generation space? Or do you think the electric generation companies are going to come into the Bitcoin space faster? Because I mean, that's kind of, there's one Bitcoin mining company up in um, New York that owns a power plant. You know, the first ones, you know, they filed in their S1 with support.com that they own this plant and they're one of the first people to do that. But do you see that trend continuing? And I mean, in the asset acquisition of by Bitcoin mining companies, or do you see that credit issue holding holding a lot of problems for them? I think that's actually more possible. You're going to start to see investors become a little creative. Bitcoin mining is not just a crypto play anymore. It's it's an electricity play. And so if you're making plays in electricity, you buy power plants. And so I what I see is more crypto mining companies and people like yourself coming up with creative mechanisms of potentially, if there is an issue with negotiating power purchase agreements with power plants and just buying the power plants themselves. And I think that is more likely than kind of waiting for the comfort level of generators to come to fruition. And are traders, trading firms looking at Bitcoin mining as an opportunity or even Bitcoin and any of these as ways to sell electricity in different markets? I think it's definitely, it's nascent, but I do think that trading companies, you know, I was talking about potential middlemen between power generators and Bitcoin miners. I think trading companies are perfect candidate to be those entities. So 
Absolutely. It is, like I said, it's, it is pretty nascent right now. But again, once the comfort level is there and the understanding of how Bitcoin miners operate is there, I think it, it will accelerate the participation of traders for sure. How has your involvement or work in Bitcoin affected your life and how do you see it continuing to affect the energy industry or you specifically as a trader? We just kind of touched on firms jumping into this space, but personally, how has, that, how has it changed how you view the world or view the energy markets? Oh, massively. I mean, it's kind of funny because I got into Bitcoin. I started investing in Bitcoin in 2013 and I was at the time I was involved in the power trading space, but I never saw the real connection between the two at that point in time. As I've kind of understood talking to people like you, the relative flexibility of Bitcoin mining, for example, the ability to participate in demand response programs, for example. And I think I really see Bitcoin mining as a way to stabilize the intermittency associated with renewable generation. The big issue that comes up and what we saw in Texas recently is that renewable generation is not the most reliable form of electricity generation. And I think you have issues where your renewable generation is overproducing and you have other situations where it's underproducing. Well, in situations where it's overproducing, Bitcoin mining is, is a perfect balancing play for sure for overproduction of renewable energy. And it works out for Bitcoin mining because usually when you have overgeneration of renewable energy, your power prices are also very low. On the other side of the coin, after what happened in Texas, I started thinking about you know capacity markets and how they operate in other places. I couldn't help but think, well, if you have Bitcoin miners as kind of a backstop to reliability, to power plants that can provide reliability in situations like this, it's the perfect solution. So I really see Bitcoin as a big participant in the balancing of power generation profile in the world, but it's especially here in the United States going forward. And so I think that that's the big opportunity with Bitcoin mining is to really be an interplay with the power markets and to really provide a, a bit more certainty when evaluating renewable energy generation. So I think, you know, you'll read a lot about kind of how Bitcoin mining contributes to contributes to emissions. I actually see the opposite. I actually see Bitcoin mining as a method of making renewable generation more profitable because of its availability. So I actually think you can see more renewable generation as a result of Bitcoin mining being in, just being there. When people who aren't familiar with the wind farm process, can you explain the tax equity structure and how those farms currently move off of a tax equity deal? I can talk about the tax credit structure for wind and for other renewables too. But essentially the way it works is right now there is a, a production tax credit of roughly $24 per megawatt hour for 10 years that wind generators receive. And so when a wind generator starts you know, generating electricity, it receives this $24 production tax credit for 10 years. And this tax credit, because the developers of wind farms don't really have an appetite, they, they, they hardly have any tax liability, this benefit of the production tax credit on the wind side is sold off as a source of financing for the wind project itself. So the tax credits are essentially sold off to mainly financial entities that have use for them, that have tax liability, and that have a use for these tax credits. And in exchange, they become a tax equity investor in the wind project. 
Act. Now, I think someone's going to have to check me on this, but I believe tax equity provides roughly 50% of the financing needs for wind projects. So it's a big deal. The selling of this tax this tax benefit is a major contributor to the financing structure of wind facilities. And that's hence why when you see negative prices on the grid, the reason prices are negative is because you want to maximize the receipt of these tax credits. And in order to do that, you need to be generating. And so even if you're generating at a time when the power really isn't needed, you're still incentivized to, to pay someone to take that power because you're receiving $24 in tax credits from the federal government. And so that, those are the times when and you have your overgeneration of electricity. And when I say, well, if you have Bitcoin mining that kind of takes up that extra generation, then you really then you really balance out the grid. But you also provide you provide price stability for the renewable projects themselves. On the solar side, there's what's called an investment tax credit, meaning it's an upfront payment of 30% of the capital cost to the developer themselves, to the developer. And so same thing, the developer will sell that upfront. Uh, receipt of the investment tax credit to tax equity sponsors, and that'll finance a portion of the build out of the renewable facility. That's kind of how the structure of the tax benefits works. Now, we're going through this real time. You know, President Biden is trying to extend uh, these tax credits. They're not going to be as high as the $24, but they'll probably be at the 60% of that. This kind of incentive structure is likely to exist for a while going forward, and is a big reason why we've had this massive build out of wind here in the United States. And so once these farms come off their tax credits and they're producing power and the markets go negative, are they turning these wind farms on and off or are they like, cause they don't want to have to pay someone if they're not getting any tax credits. So no. are the wind farms being controlled or are they just always on or? They, they offer into the grid at their cost of operations. So they're not offering at negative prices anymore. Usually what happens is that there's what's called, uh, there's a process called repowering. So you actually have the option, you know, once you get to your 10th year to basically replace your turbines, upgrade all your equipment, and then qualify for an additional 10 years of production tax credit. So a lot of wind farms will go through this process of repowering. But if, if that option is not there, then yes, they operate like a, like a merchant asset and they're offering into the grid at, at the economic price. It depends on what wind farm you go to, you know, whether they're not going to be on all the time, like other wind farms. So uh, you are correct in that there is a bit more planning needed in terms of how to operate wind farms after their production tax credit. Usually a lot of them will still have PPAs, will still have power offtake agreements with other entities that are still going on. So they will still sell power into the grid, but they won't be offering it at, at the crazy low prices because of the production tax credit. So uh, there's some gymnastics and that's what's happening with a lot of wind farms right now. These are coming off their 10-year production tax credits. Some are coming off their long-term power sale agreements agreements. And it's kind of, it's a conundrum. I don't think there's a straightforward answer in terms of how to manage power wind plants after the, the PTC and the power offtake agreements come off. You mentioned that the upgrading the turbines, can you talk a little bit more about that process? And so as a Bitcoin miner, if I'm plugging into a facility and they have to do that, they're doing that 10 year upgrade. We've, we saw in the past, like, like, okay, we have credit issues now because you can't guarantee the offtake. We can't finance the whole project. We want to sell the next 10 with a PPA for the next 10 years. Can you talk a little bit more about what that process entails and how that could affect like mining firms? 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it definitely affects mining firms and, it need, and it's something that needs to be looked at, obviously, before. So essentially, I haven't been too much on the wind development side, but there's definitely a portion of time where your wind farm is not operating from the due to the upgrade processes we just talked about. So it is something that needs to be paid attention to. So anytime you're doing a, an offtake from a, from a wind generator, it's definitely a good idea to know where they are in the timeline of receiving their production tax credit, where they are in the timeline of their of their PPA offtake, and really understanding like how that affects the mining operations. If you don't have the wind farm, if you're in a kind of regulated grid operator, okay, we're not, there's no wind. Okay. So then we're probably going to have to pay more for the time that we're sourcing power from the grid as opposed to the wind farm. So that's definitely something that needs to be taken into account because yeah, you're not going to have that wind blowing for a good portion of time. Can you explain a little bit to me, Karthik, as well, like PPA agreements and how those work? Because I understand, like, does a PPA buyer have to be local to the electric, to the wind farm generation, or can they be like in California? Like, how does that work? Because I know the stranded energy is the whole problem is like these wind farms are built all in areas where no one buys the power. And are you telling me they're financing these deals with companies that are saying we're going to use clean energy in California because we're Shopify? Like, how does that work? That is a very, very loaded question. It wasn't meant to be. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a cause of quite a bit of uh, debate within the renewable industry. So I think it's appropriate to kind of start with a little timeline to help answer your question. So when companies and different types of off takers were trying to find quote unquote renewable energy, the first thing they kind of did was just buy the renewable energy credits, which are the, the renewable attributes associated with renewable energy generation. So when you had situations like that, you had entities, say in New Jersey, buying renewable energy credits from renewable generators in Texas, for example. And so there's no power deliverable. There's no power delivered to the entity in New Jersey. It's just you're just buying the renewable attributes from that facility and then you retire them and you can claim that you are being environmentally responsible or you can make the ESG claims that you want to make. Now, kind of what's happened is that that's that practice has been called out a little bit. And now you see more physical offtakes. Now for a physical offtake to work, you do have to be in the same ISO. So if you're in PJM, you can be you can be a factory in Pennsylvania and do a physical power renewable purchase from a wind farm in say Indiana or Illinois, which and because they're both in PJM. You do need to be in the same ISO in order to do kind of the under the beneath the behind the scenes business of scheduling and deliverability and all that good stuff. It is possible to purchase renewable power from a facility in another ISO, but you have to go through the process of actually scheduling that power into the interface of the two ISOs and actually delivering it into the site. It gets more complicated as you kind of deviate away from the ISO that you're in. And so I think the answer to your question is that you really have to read the fine print of these offtakes to truly understand what level of scrutiny companies are going through to get their renewable energy. Are they just buying renewable energy credits, retiring them, or are they actually going to a facility, scheduling the power, delivering the power to the load? So it's just, it's different from agreement to agreement. And I think we're going to see a lot more scrutiny on the claims that are made by entities that that are doing these types of deals. And so that's a that's a challenge. Now, from a Bitcoin mining perspective, I think with Bitcoin miners, say if you're an ERCOT, I think 
having proximity. If you're a Bitcoin miner in West Texas, you're going to be mining most of your electricity using renewable energy because most of the electricity in West Texas just comes from renewable energy. And so it just depends on the level of comfort you have of making those claims. I think the point of that answer is to really explain the, the level of grayness in actually making these claims and the different options that are available to, to make these claims. But at the end of the day, it depends on the fine print, I think is the answer. No, I appreciate you giving me that answer. And do you, have you looked at Energy Web Token or any of those other projects that are on the blockchain to try to decentralize energy trading? So I've been hearing about this for a while. There have been a few projects that have come out that are that are kind of doing this. Those are only going to, I think, ironically, the solution to what I just mentioned about sourcing renewable energy and really quantifying the deliverability of it is going to be a blockchain solution. So I have looked at, there have been some projects going, there was a, a pilot project in Brooklyn that created essentially a peer-to-peer -peer energy trading system amongst participants in that blockchain network. This was a few years ago, I think. And so there have been, you know, I have been hearing bits and pieces of how blockchain can really enhance the analysis of how renewable energy is being utilized and, and where it goes. So I, I, I think that in terms of me keeping in touch with kind of what's going on, I wouldn't say that I've been doing that. But having said that, I think the scrutiny of how re renewable energy is generated and delivered is only going to get higher moving forward. And the blockchain solution will only serve to make that happen. I definitely agree there, Karthik, on the, the blockchain solutions. I just, it's like you said, which one's going to scale? Who is going to adopt? Where's the real use cases? Is it in electricity trading or is it in just like the carbon markets? And how are our organizations going to move forward on this technology? Karthik, is there anything else you wanted to touch on that we haven't talked about today? I think just one thing is that the next year to two years is going to be very important in how the energy market, the electricity market here in the United States evolves on a, a looking forward basis. We have legislation both at the state level and at the federal level that's really going to change quite a bit. Uh, of how the electricity market works and and as a result is going to change how Bitcoin mining works too. So the one thing I think I, I want to say is really pay attention to what happens in the next year to two years because it may dictate what's going to happen for the next 30, 40 years. So I think we're at a really unique, we're in a really unique time to where we need to really pay attention to what's happening and, and, and kind of glean the, the results of what's happening. So it's an exciting time. So I can't wait to kind of see how things unfold and to see the opportunities that arise from, from these changes that are occurring. And, and Karthik, so we talked a lot about PPAs, renewable energy, energy production, distribution, uh, the different markets, but is anyone talking about grid stability or building out better grid infrastructure or there's just no incentives there? Absolutely. Especially after what happened in Texas in February, that is a bigger and bigger conversation. I can definitely say that at the federal level, uh, it is being talked about quite a bit. And it's it's a balancing act that's going to have to be taken into account. The more renewables that you have on the grid, pretty much the less stability you have. And you know you have storage as a solution, hydrogen as a solution, but those aren't going to be solutions in the short term for the stability issue that you're talking about. So I do think that there's going to have to be a balancing act that's played between now and when those other technologies become more viable. So it's definitely a wrench that's been thrown into the discussion. It was kind of in the discussion before, but it's a much bigger topic of the discussion when asking how do we modernize our grid going forward? So that's what people that are much smarter than me are going to have to figure out, <laughs> quite frankly. So 
Hopefully, Bitcoin mining is a part of it. I think it's a very natural solution in the short term, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. And Karthik, where can people connect with you online and to stay up to date on what you're working on or you know what you're interested in? I think uh, the best place is, is on LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Karthik Ramohan on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to, to connect with me and to engage with me. Well, thanks for, for sharing that information, Karthik, and, and for sharing everything else today on like I mentioned, the PPAs and the Bitcoin mining side, I'm excited to see where this space is going to go. It's only growing. It's only maturing. It's only getting bigger. The energy consumption of Bitcoin, in my opinion, is a feature, not a bug. Have you heard any internal communication about the, the carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining and maybe how that could be perceived as bad or people talking about energy usage of Bitcoin mining as a problem in the energy sector? Or is it being viewed more of like as a solution to the problems that you're discussing, such as grid reliability. And, and maybe that's just more on the, the news front or, or the kind of the people that are not necessarily understanding the full implications of the energy markets and how um, intricate they are and, and how many how consumption and production really go hand in hand. I will admit, I think most of the public impression that I've heard about Bitcoin mining has been more towards the contributes to more emissions. I think I don't want to, I don't want to, by no means do I want to toot my own horn. I haven't heard of anyone talking about Bitcoin mining as a solution for grid reliability, to tell you the truth. I think it's a very natural solution, but I haven't heard too many people talk about it. I think the, the public opinion seems to be that it contributes more to global warming. Oh, actually, I was just watching, I watched Bill Maher uh, on HBO, and he just talked about this two weeks ago. And I think it just kind of, like you said, it kind of shows, you know, there needs to be a bit more understanding of how the electricity markets work. And one thing that I've always talked about is, yeah, Bitcoin mining can be used as a balancing entity for renewable generation. It can be used as a solution for grid reliability. Bitcoin mining can also, if you're a Bitcoin miner, you have, you're going to have some good tax liability. There are advantages for Bitcoin miners to themselves fund renewable generation in the areas that they mine it. And so one idea I've kind of thrown around is that if you're a Bitcoin miner for every megawatt hour or megawatt of mining capacity that you have, invest in two megawatts of renewable generation. And it's only going to help everyone involved. So I think, you know, and renewable investment in renewables is, you know, when you take into account kind of the different cash streams that are available, it's a great investment. So I think there needs to be kind of more thought put into how Bitcoin mining can help in balancing out, balancing out the, the grid. And, 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 if, and if there's a, a bit more thought put into kind of how Bitcoin mining can actually enhance renewable generation, I think it'll be easy to see that it's actually, it's a great solution to a lot of the issues we see in power markets. You were the one who sent me the ARK Invest article, correct? I think I did. Yes. Yes. Can you talk a little yep. bit more about what, you know, what they got right there and what they potentially might have missed off or miscalculations if you got a chance to review it? I, I think the one thing they got right off of it is the potential for balancing. I, I think that was the one thing that kind of came out to me. I haven't really been able to scrutinize uh, the numbers that they have uh, in the article too much, but I think the, and you kind of mentioned this before, the power markets are a very granular market, right? Like you need to match generation and consumption pretty, you know, every hour or even sub hourly. So I think at the end of the day, mining provides the opportunity to make that matching possible. And that article does a great job of highlighting that conclusion, is what I'll say. 100% agree. And I think we're, we're here, for, here for the ages until the last Bitcoin mining block is mined in 2140. And I'm super excited to, to be 
working with you, Karthik, on this and excited to see what the energy industry is going to you know, make of this space in the next 10 years as it grows to consume a lot more power and uh, hash rate only looks like it's, it's going up. So th- thanks again for the time. And this was, a, this was a great opportunity to record one of our conversations and, and jump on and you know, meet next time we gotta, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But it, this, was, this was great, Karthik. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. It's definitely an interesting intersection of two markets, you know, <laughs> crypto and, and power. So I'm definitely excited about, excited to see where this goes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Karthik, again. Everyone, mine on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Digital Gold. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified when the new episode drops. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review to support our journey to become the number one crypto podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, mine on.